I am vengeance. I am the night. I am also a podcast. I am a podcast. 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 Oh! It's a show. It's a show. Audio only, though. What is it about if you have time? I can tell you that it is a podcast about that many Batman talk. Uh, what did you want me to say in this part? It's a show! Yeah. Yeah! <laughs> I am a podcast. Whoa! Hey! with fans and people, people who why hello welcome to batman the animated podcast i'm your host justin michael and you're listening to an audio variety show for your ears based on the legendary 1990s cartoon batman the animated series Today's sponsor, Sabretooth Tigers. Are you over 80 episodes into a Batman series and feeling like you can push the envelope? Why not have him fight a prehistoric jungle cat, Sabretooth Tigers? They don't just jump the shark, they fucking eat it. Guys, how are you? Are things good? Great. Are you liking the new show format? Great. Well, we can't really talk right now because I've got an episode to host, but just in case you're new or haven't listened in a while, the way we're doing things now is breaking up a Batman episode over two podcast episodes. So there will be an interview with a fan who likes a certain episode and talks about that, and that'll always happen on a Thursday. And then the next Tuesday, we'll have an interview with somebody who worked on the show, a cast member, crew, whatever, and they're going to talk about working on that episode and their experience on the Batman show. So you'll you'll get it. It'll be great. It'll become easy. It'll be second nature. So let's get to today's episode, Cult of the Cat. So last week we took a deep dive with Batman fan Travis Mydell into this Catwoman caper, and today we're going to chat with one of the writers. Today's guest, Stan Berkowitz. Stan is a writer who worked on many DC animated universe shows, including the new Batman Adventures, Superman, Batman Beyond, and both Justice Leagues. He recently wrote for Thunderbirds Are Go, Avengers Assemble, and Justice League Action. He's a great guy, and it was fun to have him back on the show, so let's do it. So I'm sitting down with Stan Berkowitz. How are you? Good. All good. Yeah, thank you for coming on the show. Happy to do it. Really excited to talk to you about your work on in the DC animated universe at large, as well as your career in animation. Did you all like have a history in like loving like comics and animation and that kind of stuff, or did you no. kind of fall into it? Well, the comics. I mean, I like comics like any normal person. You read them until you're about ten or eleven, then you start reading books that didn't have pictures in them. Sure. And that was the end of it. I mean, I really liked the comics. I liked drawing. So, I, you know, as a child, I'd draw my own versions of the comics and so forth. But, you know, there, there comes a point where you outgrow them. No offense. No, I mean, you're just talking to somebody who has a closet full of uh, action I, figures and is a man-child. <laughs> I understand. I, uh, after 22 years of doing this, I've met many, many people who have <laughs> the closets full of the, the toys and... In the comic books, 
Uh, I, I too had the comics, but I traded them for a toy machine gun. <laughs> so when did you, what was the first job in animation? The first job in animation was many years later that was writing for Spider-Man. What, what had happened was because I had worked on Superboy, uh, with a writer named um, J.M. DeManis, mm -hmm. Mark, Mark DeManis. When the Spider-Man series got going in 93, 94, Mark recommended me to be one of the writers on it. And then I worked on Spider-Man for two years. And then the Superman thing came up and I went over to Warner's. So Marvel. what was your experience working in animation after not really being involved in that world? Like, did it take any sort of adjusting? Were you Nothing. coming it into takes it? Like, it takes four seconds. I and mean, if, if I were to tell someone, you know, like, well, you know, I'm, I've been doing live action. How can I do animation? I say, you just choreograph the fights more. It just requires more um, visualizing. And it did at Marvel, interestingly enough. Um, Marvel at, at, on uh, Spider-Man, they pretty much wanted every punch choreographed. When I moved over to Warner's, it was they they didn't need everything choreographed. They didn't need to know every punch, so it was e even more like live action script scripting for for the Warner's people. Did you have particular rules that you had to work by? I know on the Spider-Man series, it felt like they were using lasers a lot and like you know punches yeah because were... you can't have guns right you and can't... somehow Batman got away with that. Yeah. Around the same time. So, like, what was it like to shift from that kind of production to another? It was a little looser. I, I can't say it was, it was like day and night or anything. It was just a little looser moving to, um, moving to Batman. There, there were still the issues of, you know, you, you can't kill people and you have to be careful about sadistic stuff and all that. It was just slightly looser. The, the place where everything got really loose was Justice League. Right. Because then we were, we were on a cartoon network, and um, my favorite example of that is when we did the Aquaman story in Justice League. <laughs> there, there's this, you know, he loses his hand. Yeah, it's like the end of part one of the two-parter. He right? has to cut off his own hand yeah. get, because the hand's stuck in a trap, and he, in order to escape. And um, the one note from broad BS and P broadcast standards and practices, the one note was. We're not going to see the hand actually being cut off on screen, are we? To which Rich Fogel, who you know, responded by saying no. And they went, okay, fine. Everything's good. That's amazing. <laughs> yeah. I mean, we ne really never intended to show a hand being separated from its arm. <laughs> yeah, we don't, we don't need to see that. <laughs> but Bat Batman... Batman and Superman were... We had to be, you know, a little bit more careful. And the, the issue was... We, the reason we wanted laser rifles and stuff like that, I'm not talking now about Spider-Man and Batman. Right. The reason you wanted laser rifles was BS&P would say, well, you know, half the kids live in households with guns. We don't want them picking it up and thinking it's fun to use one of these. Right, like non-imitatable non weaponry. That's the exact word. Like, uh, on Spider-Man, some of the other imi non-imitatable things we had to avoid was going through a glass. You couldn't jump through a window. Cr crashing, you couldn't crash through a window. It had to be open. Well, Batman and Superman is made of crashing through windows. <laughs> it's yeah. interesting. That but but on Spider-Man, you have to be very careful about that because, again, imitatable. A kid could run through a window. 
Do you think as that I did just... as I did when I was young? <laughs> Is this true? Yeah, but it wasn't deliberate. <laughs> we were playing. I just sort of went back head first through. A, was it like a first story window? Yeah, first okay. story. I'm California, remember? Yes, that's true. <laughs> so, how did you transition from Spider-Man to Superman? How did you get the Superman job? It was just in one weekend. I mean, it it never goes like this, except it did in this at this time. Um, John Semper, who was the producer and head writer on um, Spider-Man, said, hey, we're running out of episodes here. They, they'd been contracted to 65, and it become it had become well-known in the trades that there was a Superman thing starting up. John recommended it. John recommended that I have my agent contact Warners. My doctor, who is knows a lot about show business. We were chatting at a physical. And he said, hey, do you know about the Superman thing? You should look that up. I'll come back to the doctor in a minute. So between the two of them, I called, you know, the, the, the advice I got from the two of them, I called my agent. I said, would you do this? He said, sure. Um, Alan, Bur I met Alan Burnett then. He gave me one assignment, uh, the Metallo script. The Way of All Flesh? Yeah. He liked the way it turned out and said, you know, you can be on staff here. I think Alan might have written the story, but I'm, I'm not sure. He may have just had a rough outline for it. I just, I just don't remember. It's a great episode. Well, I'm, and, uh, I'm glad you like it. Yeah. But that was the first one, and he, he liked the way it was written, obviously. So I came aboard uh, for the staff of Superman along with some other writers. And what was that experience like joining that staff? It's great. I mean, really nice people. Um, <laughs> I I liked them a lot. I mean, they became they became friends, and to the point where I I had to quit. I think we were doing Batman at the time, but it's the same group. Right. I had to quit to go over to Universal to do some live action. And by the end of the, the live action thing, it's like God. I really miss my friends. <laughs> That's, I mean, like, why not like work with the people that you already like at this point? <laughs> That's a very sound, a very, very sound statement. And if you can apply it to your entire working career, you'd be very lucky. Yeah. If you can make money and work with people you like. Yeah. Great. Or resolve to like the people you work with. <laughs> yeah. So what was the process in the Superman room like? Uh, there was no room. So was it separately? Like, would you brainstorm episodes together or just kind of get assignments or? Um, it, Alan was sort of, Alan Burnett was sort of the, the hub of all that. Right. And he would, he would come up with his, with like an area and tell you to go work on it and try to figure out a story, then you, you'd, it would be back and forth with Alan usually. I mean, try, try to imagine Alan at the center and then all the writers around him going back and forth. Occasionally, the writers would talk to each other about stories. But, but in general, it would, <coughs> Alan would be the hub and he would, he would shepherd each, each episode along. I'm sure there were a few exceptions to that, but that that's how it worked from, from my perspective. Were you more of like a Batman or Superman guy, or did you like them both? Superman's harder to work, harder to write for. What's hard to write about him? Because he's he's too powerful. So Batman's easier. Batman's much easier. I mean, he's he's got. Plus, he has an attitude. Mm -hmm. Superman. We always talk about him as the Boy Scout. And Batman is the the one with the the crippled psyche. 
So he's more interesting, I think. Growing up, did you have a particular Batman that you locked into or liked the most or felt truest? Well, yes, I did. Um, as I said, my, my, my history of it was you start with Superman because as again, I was probably, I, I don't even remember the first time I saw it. I was that young. I was probably about three years old. You start with Superman because as a three-year-old, it's, it's a fantasy of power and strength in vulnerability. You can do anything. You can fly all that stuff. As you get older, like by the time I was eight is when I got the, uh, saw my first Batman comic. So at, at eight years old or so, you're starting to think, no one can fly. No one's impervious to bullets. Give me a story where it, it's a guy who's, who's human with human limitations. Because you, as an eight-year-old, you're becoming more accustomed to the way the world works. So that Batman, the Batman of 1958, 59, 1960, which of course, when you go to look at the greatest Batman stories ever told, there's a little editorial note. When you go to look for the ones that you used to read between 58 and 60, they go, yeah, we didn't include many of these because they weren't very good. Oh. That's in the book. Um, really? Yeah. Greatest Batman stories. I remember looking specifically for ones that I remembered. What are some of your favorites that you remember? Oh, I don't. I, I mean, I, I had to, it, it's so long ago. But, yeah. But, but what I thought I would have remembered if they'd been in the book. But there's like a leap between, you know, the the, old, the really old Batman from pre 1950 to I think they went into the, to the mid 60s. It's something like that. You'll see some stuff from the early 50s. So like the space agey stuff, like uh, you know. Where like it was like Batman encountering aliens and like more sci-fi kind of plots. You mean did I like those? Or were those the story? Yeah, were those the stories you were looking I, for? I just or? remember I the thing, my Batman as opposed to the other nerds' Batman. Right. My Batman was the detective, because you know you'd be as as an eight year old you're reading the story and then there'd be some really neat explanation as to how Batman figured out something, and you'd go oh really that's clever you know. Um, if I'm ever in a if I'm ever in a situation where someone's been killed in a locked room, I will go look and see underneath the crossbow that is aimed at him if there's a puddle of water, because then I will know that the crossbow was um, held in check by an, a, a block of ice that slowly <laughs> melted, because the murderer knew that. The victim would be sitting in a certain chair. I do remember that particular one, obviously, very, very clearly. Yeah, I mean, I love that, like, deductive reasoning Batman. And stupid, too, because, you know, here's a guy sitting there facing a loaded crossbow, and there's a big chunk of ice on it holding holding it in, you know, in, in check from being shot. Didn't see it? Didn't see it? Okay, thank you. <laughs> but, you know, as an eight-year-old, you go, wow, that's pretty clever. Because they were writing for eight-year-olds. They weren't writing for adults. Well, how did you approach writing Superman? Because I feel like the Superman show <coughs> similarly appealed to, like, the same Batman crowd. Uh, at least, like, the we tried. series. <laughs> yeah, and, and I think it did a good job. Like, how did, you, how did you balance, like, not overpowering him or finding a way to tell interesting stories to people other than eight-year-olds? Well, the, the, the question of power is an accurate one because he, his powers vary from episode to episode. Right. I mean, sometimes he has trouble stopping a locomotive and other times he can, he'll lift a planet, you know? So that would be a error in the writing, I guess. <laughs> um, as far as making it interesting, 
right early on, Paul Levitz, who was running DC at that time, came by and had lunch with, with the writers and said, one of the issues that, one of the things that helps us in creating stories is to give Clark Kent a problem that Superman has to deal with. So as soon as he said that, I went back, started thinking and thought, well, what if we kill Clark Kent? Is this the late Mr. Kent? Yeah. One of the best episodes of the series. Well, I'm glad you like it, but that was that was the cool thing is that, you know, for, because of what Paul Levitz said, what if you give him a problem? Well, what other what bigger problem can there be than if your your alter ego's dead? <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's a great it's a very noirish episode. Well, that was the other that was the other cool thing. Um, you'll find that most action adventure series now, and I, I just wrote a couple for um, Marvel's Avengers. They're um, they're serialized. Everything has to be of the same tone, and it, it's all part of a, um, a, a you know a, one long story. But the uh, the wonderful opportunity that we had with both the Batman and the the Superman series was that we could we were telling standalone stories which meant you could change the tone which meant that oh all right we'll do a film noir one where superman's narrating it yeah. like they did in the old film noirs you know series or uh, movies we could do that or we'll do a comedy like and here's your segue cult of the cat interesting yeah that was a good segue thank uh, you very much so speaking of cult of the cat that's how i make my living you know <laughs> yeah you're the go-to segue guy i've heard uh, the new Batman Adventures episode, Cult of the Cat, uh, which is like, you know, later in the series run, uh, it's definitely... It was one of the first new ones, though, I think. Interesting. Or was it? Uh, I mean, maybe it was produced earlier. I think it like it was maybe like Came in the middle later. of the season. Came out later? Yeah, because okay. I know there was another Catwoman episode <laughs> first, like a Nightwing, Catwoman sort of team up. Uh, anyway... Well, so this was your story. You and no, Paul no, no. Dini? This is Paul Dini's. Because um, I think you have like a shared story credit. We, you we do, we do. But I don't remember what I did, and I don't remember what Paul did. I, I, I don't remember thinking up the idea of Catwoman and the giant cat. So that probably came from Paul. <laughs> I don't. I, actually, I, I just. I'm sorry. I, I don't. You, the problem is, I could, I could be telling you this the day after we had our story meeting because there's so much back and forth in any story meeting mm -hmm. that you leave not remembering exactly what you brought to it um just because writing is inherently collaborative or at least well, in that way. not always <laughs> not always well in this case it was yes very so I, I like i said i don't remember but i'm i'm sure that they you know it came from paul let's do a catwoman episode let's have the giant cat let's have a cult surrounding it so I'm thinking you know again we have a chance to do we can change we can use whatever tone we want so um, you have a crazy woman or amoral and you got a giant cat what movie is that what what screwball movie is that from 19, I don't 1937 know. 1938 it's bringing up baby and Batman's the Cary Grant part where interesting he's a, a lunkhead Batman's a sap in this. He's a sap for the whole thing because theoretically he likes her. Yeah, I mean, this one for sure feels like more of a Catwoman-centric episode. She is the focus of it. Like, her story yeah. is the one that gets completed. We're following her for most of it, and Batman will pop up. Yeah. 
I mean, the whole first, like most of the first act is Catwoman. Yeah. Uh, that's interesting. I, I And she gets away with it. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. It ends with her laying on a bed of jewels, <laughs> having gotten away with it. Uh, I think that's what we like about Catwoman, though. Like, how do you how do you approach writing her? Well, it, I guess I mean I think I'm not sure who wrote the first one. It was probably Paul. Yeah, Paul has an interesting way with um, with women. I mean, a lot of them are they're, they're like a different species. In what way? What do you mean? Well, Catwoman. I mean, totally amoral. Except in, in Call to the Cat, there's a moment where she comes back and saves him. Right. When he's trapped, he's facing up. How do I know you're going to save me? <laughs> and it's like, well, <laughs> give it a shot. And he, he trusts her and she does help him out. Um, so a rare moment. I mean, if you look at Paul's stuff, I mean, Home and Garden. Yeah. Where... That the, Poison the, Ivy episode. The ideal woman isn't even a woman. I mean, it's Stepford Wives. So, I mean, he has, he has a way with, with female characters. So I guess, you know, whatever, I looked at whatever he, he had, he had laid down and thought, well, you know, let's, let's view her as sort of a madcap, um, uh, you know, 19, late 1930s, uh, heroine. Yeah. Really amoral. But maybe with a core, <laughs> a tiny little core of goodness. Just a little bit. <laughs> yeah. So uh, how did you, let's talk about the cult itself. Like, what, was that a collaborative thing as well? Or was that, do you remember I generating? I remember. Paul might have generated that too. I, I just don't remember. They almost felt like uh, they were like Society of Shadows kind of guys with like Wolverine <laughs> claws. Yeah. Uh, they were a lot of fun. They were. <laughs> I mean, Calvin was ready to join them. Yeah. It's like, well, cool. You know, I'm, I'm here. I'll, I'll deal with it. I like that about her. I mean, she, it's just, all right, you guys are insane cultists. I'll sign on. <laughs> well, yeah. I mean, she seems, you know, it seemed more about the fact that she wanted to steal their, you know, sure. whatever, like idols, jewels. <laughs> she's virtually a kleptomaniac. Yeah. She's playing everyone. Uh, I mean, virtually, virtually, like, definitely. <laughs> virtually kleptomaniac. She just steals for the, for the sake of stealing. Yeah, I liked... I mean, I feel like you really leaned into it in this episode. Uh, we've seen, like, you know, the kind of environmentalist-ish Catwoman in other episodes, but she is always... She's brought down, you know, whatever goodness she has, she's still, like, tethered to her kleptomania. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's a mania. I mean, you can't... You, you don't get rid of it. Yeah. Except with medication, I suppose. Right, which we did not see in this series. <laughs> Um, no, no, uh, static shot a couple years later there was a villain, uh, I think it was called hot streak. Interesting. And he ends up in a uh, mental hospital and they just keep feeding him medication, you know, like pills they, to, to keep him from burning up everything. And I got a letter from a mental health group complaining, not, th not thanking me for <laughs> saying, you know, sometimes people belong to a mental institution, but complaining because there's a, there's a scene where in order for him to escape, he, he stops taking the medication, he just pretends to swallow it, then spits it out later. So we got a nasty letter saying, you're encouraging people not to take their medication. Which I thought, I'm the last person that would do that. Medication works. There, I mean, I Static Shock, it felt like tackled some more, I don't know, real issues. Yeah, yeah. A uh, lot of that was Dwayne. Dwayne's McDuffie. Dwayne, Dwayne McDuffie, yeah. Dwayne, um, there's an earthiness. I don't mean it in a sexual way, but they, the people were tethered to 
their 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 lives, the real world. They had jobs that they had to go to. They had bills they had to pay, and I think that was Dwayne's contribution. Yeah, I think it was a very meaningful show. Uh, you don't see a lot of shows like that. I mean, like I imagine, like the demographic and the stories are. It's like very cool to see it made, uh, yeah. and it crossed over into the DC universe. I mean, it was a part of it. For sure, there were multiple crossover episodes. Green Lantern? Yeah. I think I wrote the Green Lantern one. Uh, yeah, there was like a Sinestro sort of crossover. It, yeah, it was Sinestro had had changed his appearance to look exactly like Jon Stewart. Right. It was the most amazing recording session. Phil Lamar, Phil Lamar played, um, obviously he played Static Shot. Right. He also played um, Jon Stewart. He also played Sinestro. So it, you're listening to it. You're, you're listening to the recording session. You're going, yeah, yeah, this is working. This is working. And you realize it's just one person just switching from voice to voice. That's insane. So wait, he, you weren't even doing it separately? Like he was doing it back to back? Yeah, he just went through the script. He, he just went through the script. And <sighs> I, I, was the there, <laughs> I was there. I was there. But I was sitting in the recording booth in a, in a position where I couldn't physically see him. So you're just hearing it and you're going, yeah, yeah, this is perfect. <laughs> and, it, you know, it's three different people talking. Clearly, it's three different people talking. And then you look over there and it's just one person sitting there. It was all Phil, Phil Lamar. He's incredible. Uh, I mean, he's uh, so great. And what movie did he get his head blown off in? Oh, Pulp Fiction. Yep. He wins. He's Pulp Fiction. Yep. He wins. Uh, and, of course, he's Samurai Jack, which people also like. Uh, Phil, Phil's, I mean, voice acting, you can't do better than Phil. Yeah, he's great. Uh, well, anything else about Cult of the Cat, like, that you remember? Any tidbits of... <laughs> do I remember? I'm trying to think. Yeah, I know. I mean, you've worked on so much also. Like, I'm sure it all swirls together at some point. Well, uh, it, do it does, because part of it is that the minute you're done with the script, you're on to the next one. Right. You don't really... You don't follow it from beginning to end. On some of the features, the, the two animated features, um, New Frontier and Public Enemies, those I was able to follow more closely. So I, I remember those. And you worked on New Frontier as well? Yeah, uh, adapting that. Did you work directly with Darwin? No. And interestingly enough, the only time we were ever in the same room was at the Emmy Award ceremony. What I did on New Frontier was that I, I had all the comics in front of me, tried to work out a story work. The main job is editing and condensing. Lots of editing, lots of condensing. Right, like what do you showcase and how do you tell a complete story in a right. shorter I mean, it became clear that it was the Green Lantern's origin story. So that is what we condensed it down to. And then I did a couple drafts of the script and then Darwin made some revisions, then I made some revisions on top of that and then the thing got animated. It's one of the I think it's one of my favorite things that I've worked on. It's incredible. New it's really Frontier. great. Really beautiful. It's really from it's it's the as far as the design work, the character designs, it's the only character design work besides the um, Batman animated series that I really like. And, I mean, Darwin was involved in some of the designs on the animated series, or at least the new Batman Adventures and Superman. I, I'm not sure of when he started. Yeah. But I believe I believe that's correct, but I, I'm just not sure of when he started. But the the, the, the two styles are, are vastly different. Yeah. But I, I, those are the, my two favorites. From They're very the, clean. 
it just it's stylish you know yeah. the thing that caught my eye about the 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 very first episodes of the batman animated series was they weren't trying to be realistic with the work they were being stylized in little extreme and i like that a lot and the same goes for uh, the new frontier designs it's it's stylized. I mean, if you're going to be doing animation, don't try to make it look like real life. No, embrace the medium. Go, go with go with the style, and, and those those two are, are, are my favorites. Yeah, one of my least favorite things is when I see animation that's like really trying to emulate like yeah. normal proportions across the board. Which like there's that whole uncanny valley principle, which makes it it looks weirder to you. Also, it's not satisfying. Yeah, for you an get audience. you get that with um, 3D. Yeah. I, I shouldn't say 3D. I mean, it's with the computer animation, yeah. which everyone does now. But. Depending on the show, like some of it just looks bad because of well, they, that. they try to make it look real, and it's close. But you think, well, you know, as long as you have the the ability to make it stylized, why not? Why not choose a style? Yeah, I mean, that's what I love about watching animation is that you can do that. <laughs> sometimes you do, and sometimes you don't. You were able to follow like New Frontier all the way through versus on an episode. Well, in terms of following it all the way through, it just meant that I I didn't have to jump on something else right away afterward. Right. So it went. There was there was really no story editor. Not not a lot of notes or anything, so it, it just it went through fairly fairly simply. Do you remember any? I mean, like. Uh... By the way, that was my second favorite Batman voice was Jeremy Sisto. Who, Re- oh, as Batman. As Batman in that, yeah. 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 Jeremy Sisto is great. Uh, yeah, Kevin he, he, Sisto recorded it individually. Kevin, I don't know if anybody's mentioned this to you, but Kevin Conroy's work. He, he's sort of the center of the recording session. As Alan is to the writing, Kevin is to, to the acting. Not that he tells other people how to act, but they look to him to see the tone of it. So what, and you, you never know this when you see it. You just say, oh, this is working great. But when he's not there, you go, oh boy, now we're in trouble because you, the, the actors who've never done the show before don't have the guidance for tone. And I, I have witnessed some instances where they've gone into camp and just treated it as just being silly and a joke because Kevin wasn't there to, to, to center them in, in what the correct tone should be. That's interesting. And like I said, he never, he, it's not like he tries to, act, to direct the other actors. He just does his job. But the people look to him because he's a regular on the show and they, they get the sense of what the tone should be. When he's not there, boy, <laughs> there have been problems. I what mean, was it like watching him uh, in those recording sessions? Very ordinary. I mean, he, he just sort of comes in, does his work, and he's wonderful. And what, were, what was some of the, like, I don't know if you can talk about it, but like one of you were saying, boy, we got, got in trouble or it went sour. Like, what, were there any instances in particular that you remember? April Moon, because he wasn't there. The Batman for, Beyond episode. Yeah, he wasn't there for that. And April Moon, it's another one of those noirish things, but there's a romance in it. I mean, it's very difficult. You know, the guy fell, he was deeply in love, and then, it, you know, his heart was broken. But it was also a film noirish thing, and um, difficult to pull off. And at least one of the actors just thought, oh, it's a joke, you know, it's crazy. So he he basically had to be restrained or, or the 
performance was, he didn't have to be restrained. The performance had to be restrained considerably. Oh, interesting. I mean, Andrea is a great director, um, but sometimes <laughs> things just go shooting off into the, into the stratosphere, and he had to be brought back. And when it came to Cult of the Cat, sure. um, that story for me felt like you couldn't tell those stories in the older animated series episodes. Like, we had found, like, now that Superman was a thing, it felt like the stories had to get bigger. Like, the stakes were a little larger. Uh, like, the fact that there's a, like, giant genetically modified cat uh, and an entire cult, like, that's a story that feels much larger in scope. Were, were you look, looking for those kinds of stories, or did it just kind of naturally happen? No, and what you're saying to me never occurred to me. <laughs> I never thought about that. There were some pretty big Batman stories in the in the original series, weren't there? Yeah, no, I'm just, I feel like we you were able to, like, grow and get away with, like, larger set pieces. Bigger scope? Yeah. It's possible. I mean, you know, I, I maybe the directors are getting more comfortable with, with the limits or testing the limits as they weren't doing that before. The stories on the original series I really admired. They're wonderfully constructed. Many, most of them are kind of noir stories, and a lot of them focused on characters you'd never see again. You know, a, a supporting character, a guest character. They're, and they're just, they work so well, the stories. I don't know that the, the children who saw the show appreciated how well those stories worked. I think it's I, something that you... Uh... I don't know if you appreciate it as a child, like, you know, on the surface or like, but it for sure sinks in. Like, uh, Later. for me, like, I, I love it. And the more I watched it and the older I got, you appreciate it on different levels. Yeah. Um, and, and it also gave you a barometer for quality because uh, there was a lot of bad stuff as well. Uh, and so seeing this kind of a show, like, you know, it's sinking in in the background and, and kind of attuning you to liking things that are well made and don't treat you like an idiot. I think, you know, like bad children's TV talks down to kids. Yeah. Uh, and and th this felt like it didn't, it felt different um, across the board. Like, I mean, Superman, Justice League, Justice League feels like it was aged up and it wasn't, it was, it felt like it was for a different audience as well. An older even, audience. An even older audience? Yeah, I think, or at least like it spanned a larger audience. Because uh, I remember when it first came on, it was on at night. Justice League, yeah. Yeah, on Cartoon Network. Yeah, they ran it as one hours, right? Yeah. <laughs> they can't, they, you can't sh show a one hour thing to kids anymore. Uh, yeah. <laughs> at best, a quarter hour. I love that there were two partners, though. Like, you had, you could dig into the story and enough of the characters. Yeah, to have an hour to, to tell a, a story was wonderful. I guess just to wrap things up, is there anything anything else you want to say about Cult of the Cat? It's been a while. It's been 20 years. Well, it might be nice if someone who sees that takes a look at one of those old screwball comedies. Check out Bringing Up Baby. I mean, there's a, a, there's a, a leopard on the loose, a, a stiff of a, of a leading man. Cary Grant plays... Uh, kind of an uptight um, uh, scientist and just a, a wild, uh, uninhibited uh, Catherine Hepburn. Cool. There you so go. Get a good film in while you're at it. Worth looking at. Thank you. And with that interview, we've wrapped up Call to the Cat. If you liked what you heard, please rate and review the show in iTunes. Follow us on Twitter at BTAS Podcast and me at Hey Justin. Subscribe in iTunes or wherever you get podcasts. And please keep the show going by donating at patreon.com slash BTAS Podcast. 
Batman the Animated Podcast is hosted, co-produced by me, Justin Michael. Tom Smith created the show logo, and Casey Trela helped produce the theme song. Harry Chaskin is the booming voice of the podcast. Andrew Seeley is my show producer at Feral Audio. Emma Erdbrink engineered it, and Matt Brousseau edited it. Thanks again to my guest, Stan Berkowitz. Check out episode 33 of the podcast if you want to hear more from him about the episode Chemistry. Batman got married. Uh, also, extra special thanks to This American Life producer, Tori Malatia, who had a wrestling match, actually, the other night and said, I might have been knocked out twice tonight, but I still have my long-term memory. Yeah, sure, nobody was questioning that, Tori. Anyway, stay tuned, guys, because next week we have a 50th episode special anniversary one week from today with Batman co-creator Eric Radomski. Ooh, it's going to be a good one. All right, till then. That's it.